Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to Pelgrane Press's Gaming with the King in Yellow panel as part of Gen Con Online. I am uh, uh, going to introduce uh, the other panelists. Let's start with transmedia artist and writer, published poet, co-designer of the Parasite alternate reality game, designer of Passing and contributor to Pelgrane's upcoming Black Star Magic and Yellow King Bestiary, it's Sarah Sam Saltiel. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Contributor to Cthulhu Confidential and the Black Star Magic Sourcebook for the Yellow King role-playing game, friend of the Dream Clown, Ruth Tillman. Hello. Annotator of Arc Dream's King in Yellow Annotated Edition, designer of the Fall of Delta Green, Ninth Black Agents, Trail of Cthulhu, and Day After Ragnarok, my podcasting partner in crime, Kenneth Height. Hey. I am Robin D. Laws, designer of the Yellow King role-playing game and author of the related works of fiction, New Tales of the Yellow Sign, and The Missing and the Lost. Uh, so we are here to talk about uh, using uh, the uh, Yellow King mythos as first established in the four short stories by uh, Robert W. Chambers uh, in your uh, tabletop role-playing experience. And uh, we're going to, over the course of this, uh, discuss Chambers himself and this small corpus of stories that has then sort of uh, blossomed into a sort of uh, community-owned greater mythology, uh, and then talk about uh, how I adapted that for, uh, first of all, my book of short stories, and then this role-playing game with an eye toward how you can uh, use the King of Yellow, Yellow in your game. Uh, this uh, particular approach to the King in Yellow uh, sort of takes out later uh, Cthulhu mythos elements that were added to it, but as uh, we're about to discuss, the Cthulhu mythos and uh, chamber stories uh, retroactively became intertwined. And it's probably where many of you are familiar uh, with uh, uh, the Pallid King and Camilla and Casilda and the Lake of Holly uh, probably all come through uh, an awareness of Lovecraft and the greater uh, weird fiction tradition. But in order to sort of get our feet wet a bit and, and uh, think about uh, the gaming part of the equation, I'm gonna ask each of our panelists in turn to uh, uh, Describe an element that you introduce into your game so that the players feel that they didn't just get a, a regular standard horror experience, but got a specifically yellow king, king in yellow experience. Uh, Sam? Yeah, so I think the answer here is twofold. Um, I think the first thing I'd like to call out is historicity. Obviously, a lot of Pilgrim's games have a strong historical basis, and I think it's important for all of them to draw on the history of the setting, but... I think it's doubly important for the King in Yellow because the game is built with these four settings that sort of feed into each other. You want to make sure that the players feel uh, like something is different in each iteration. Playing in Paris is going to be playing different from playing in This Is Normal Now. And differentiating the settings is what's going to make like the eerie coincidences and the surreal connective tissue stand out even more. So I'd say that like drawing deeply on the culture and the atmosphere of your setting is crucial for, for the game. So if you're setting it in Impressionist Era Paris, it should be evident from like the way the GM sees interact with the characters and the sorts of clues that they find like every part of like the dna of your scenario should be infused with a historical setting um and i would say that the other thing that i like to draw in is specifically the differentiation between regular horror and cosmic horror which at least to me the reason that cosmic horror is so popular and so profoundly impactful the reason that there's so many lovecraftian games in the industry is that it digs into like one of our deepest fears as humans, which is that we don't matter. 
um, like particularly in the States, we're very like focused on the Anthropocene. Um, but I think living in a post-Cold War society in one that's dealing with ongoing issues like global warming and now the pandemic, um, it was like very sneaky, devastating fear that our destruction is inevitable and worse that it's like not personal that the biggest threats to us aren't out for revenge that they could just destroy us at any moment and we are irrelevant to them so i think that's kind of the key to understanding cosmic horror and it's that feeling that in my opinion is so important to implement in each king and yellow game the bad guys aren't like just vindictive it's not that the pcs are special the threats kind of just exist they are and the pcs happen to stumble across them and get tangled up in that them and that in itself is like the specific brand of horror uh, for a little bit of context uh, the yellow king role-playing game if you're not familiar with this particular uh, approach the king yellow has four uh books four uh different settings uh and it has a grand uh kind of arc where you play different iterations or reflections of characters over time so the first one is Paris, that's set in Belle Epoque, Paris, as we'll talk about in a sec. Uh, that is the setting of some of Chambers' stories and, and when he was writing. Uh, then we have uh, The Wars, which is set in a fictional 1947 continental war uh, in which weird horror things are happening in an alternate uh, reality of war and devastation. Uh, then we have Aftermath, uh, which is uh, in 2020 or whatever present day you choose to play in but in an alternate reality just after the 100-year reign of a Yellow King-powered uh, totalitarian di dictatorship in America has been overthrown. And then finally, uh, this is normal now, which is about our own totally regular, normal, ordinary, uh, real world where nothing weird has happened and, and nothing in these books that I wrote two years ago has started coming true. Um, so Ruth, uh, what is your sort of signal element that uh, you need to introduce to make something a, a Yellow King game? I think the idea of appearances and um, changes to one's nature and um, subtle, I was going to try to use the word alighting, but I think the idea of morphing or changing into something, revealing some under underlying layer that is horrifying, um, as Sam referenced, cosmic horror, it's revealing the known universe and that there are deep and horrifying things underneath the ordinary reality that we see. But I think also the idea of things changing and of not being able to necessarily trust our senses, whether it's because we didn't understand that someone was something or whether it's because we keep looking out a window and we're like, is that guy kind of like a big worm? Is that what he really is? That's, that's horrifying. And so it's very, it's a very subtle, um, way in which the fabric of reality around us is undermined um, that's not necessarily present in other kinds of horror gaming. Uh, Ken, what are your uh, touch points for uh, Yellow King gaming? Um, for, for me, it's very much building on, I mean, obviously, uh, both uh, Sam and Ruth's observation, everything that I run is going to have a historicity to it. And part of the fun of uh, bouncing off someone else's creation is to bounce off the specific times and places that they're concerned with and with Chambers specifically because his first and greatest King and Yellow story is one literally about a weird unreal history uh, that is, is called into the foreground in a way that it's not with Lovecraft or with other horror authors. Uh, the Repair of Reputations famously takes place in the far-flung uh, eugenic future of 1920 
uh, a future that may not actually exist, except in the mad ravings of the narrator that we eventually begin to suspect is not even happening. So the other element is uh, building on Ruth's notion of eliding uh, appearances is that reality itself is shifting and history is shifting and something that was absolutely not true is suddenly true. There was suddenly a play called The King in Yellow. There was suddenly, you know, a, a President Winthrop. There's all manner of things that show up and have always been the case. And that combination of uh, eruption into our world and a sense that they were always there waiting to replace us, I think is one of the lovely things the Chambers accomplishes possibly without meaning to in the course of his stories. And I, I very much enjoy that aspect of it. And I think that that is, uh, it obviously gives you a great excuse to put anything you want into the game, but also it, it has its own specific flavor of reality horror that uh, Lovecraft uh, uh, is to some extent almost the opposite of because his argument is all of this is reality and you're just too stupid to know it. Whereas Chambers is more saying reality just depends on whether or not you read a play when you had a fever. <laughs> and he's very much the sort of um, solipsist uh, Berkeleyan uh, philosophy as opposed to Lovecraft's hardcore Lucretian, you know, atoms exist. Get it real, people. Uh, yeah, my own uh, touchstone is reality horror. And that's the phrase that I've used to differentiate uh, the way the Yellow King role-playing game uh, handles the king in yellow and uh, his perhaps daughters and uh, the strange influence of Carcosa uh, and the uh, disorienting effect of having read this decadent uh, play. Uh, that the idea uh, that it's sort of an interior uh, mental space that, that you're... Uh, having read a play can not only change your perception of reality, but perhaps can change reality itself uh, underneath you. And uh, the the thing that I find interesting about the King in Yellow as a as an antagonist is that unlike uh, the great old ones, unlike Cthulhu and and uh, Yogg-Sothoth and Azathoth and so forth, he he actually is enough on our level and does care enough about us to come and destroy us when we make this mistake of reading the play, for example. And so uh, the sense that that uh, reality is shifting under our feet, and uh, particularly with the repair of reputations, the idea that a conspiracy theory can lead to a political revolution uh, that is both uh, utterly irrational, yet seems at, at some point uh, can possibly succeed, uh, is one that, uh, as I've alluded to earlier, has, has become all too relevant uh, in our, our real uh, world, and uh, and one that uh, I, I think has, if not uh, certainly that that story, the repair of reputations, has an interest in politics that you don't see in uh, Lovecraft or uh, necessarily in a lot of other uh, horror works, and so. Uh, my novel, The Missing and the Lost, is set in the aftermath world, and the protagonist is an ex-insurgent who, over the course of the novel, while also dealing with supernatural events, finds uh, himself uh, drawn, much to his chagrin, into the world of traditional politics. So I think that's also something that makes uh, this particular brand of horror particularly topical. Uh, but to move from 
2020 back to uh, 1895. Uh, Ken, you did the annotations for our friends at Arc Dreams, a gorgeous deluxe edition of uh, Chambers, the King in Yellow. And uh, you found that uh, there's been relatively little scholarship done on uh, this uh, sort of foundational figure of weird horror. So perhaps you could uh, talk a bit about uh, Chambers himself and, uh, and then we can discuss the four original stories that have later blossomed into this sort of quasi-literary folk horror uh, tradition. Not folk horror in the sense that people are Morris dancing, but in the sense that all sorts of creators, as they did with the Cthulhu Mythos, have added their own spin and adaptation and take to it. Right. Uh, Chambers uh, is born in 1865 in Brooklyn. He's uh, from the professional class. His dad is a doctor. Uh, they sort of wanted him to be a lawyer. He did not want to be a lawyer. He wanted to be a sculptor at first, and then discovering that sculpting involved math, uh, switched to drawing and uh, was uh, uh, packed off to Paris to study art, uh, first at the Academy Julian and then at the Academy des Beaux-Arts, which was the official uh, uh, a school in France that you went to to learn uh, academic painting, that's where the term comes from. So you can be hung in the salon, the greatest exhibition of of, um, uh, of art in the world, uh, at the exact same time, or roughly, that uh, the salon was becoming irrelevant. And that is sort of the touchstone to Chambers' whole life, is that he masters something right when people stop paying attention. So he masters regional fiction. Uh, when he comes back after writing The King in Yellow, he writes uh, regional adventure fiction set in... Uh, upstate New York. And then he masters the shop girl romance, which is uh, the, the stories of young working class women who meet weak millionaires and make them better. Virgil the cat, by the way, everybody. Um, uh, who meet weak millionaires and make them better, uh, becomes a massive best-selling author, uh, and basically never looks back at the King in Yellow again. The, those stories come out of his Paris experiences and his brief time in New York's uh, uh, copycat decadent scene that was centered in Greenwich Village where he lived as a single man. He got married. And as many writers who get married do, he turned to what made money as opposed to uh, what was fun. So he uh, moved past that and became a, a pillar of the bourgeois community. Uh, he was always outdoorsy and nature loving. He was sort of the opposite of the decadence that he hung out with in Paris and that he painted as the sort of uh, innocent victims and evil uh, influences in the King and Yellow stories. Um, and uh, as a personality, quite different from uh, Lovecraft, but it's oh, Lovecraft yes. who uh, sort of is responsible for not at the time, but sort of in a, the weird kind of delayed uh, ripple effect decades later of, if not reviving Chambers' reputation, of creating this sort of cult awareness of these few stories. And that's in uh, Lovecraft's essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature. Right. Yeah, uh, Chambers, um, it, it, in fact, when Lovecraft discovered that Robert W. Chambers had written uh, The King in Yellow, had written seminal horror stories uh, that were astonishingly uh, congruent with Lovecraft's own interests and beliefs, he reacted with shock. He, he didn't believe it. He said, can you believe, in, in letters, can you believe that Robert W. Chambers wrote horror stories? It would be like if we discovered that Jacqueline Suzanne had written werewolf stories in the 50s. 
uh, we'd be uh, it's the same level of shock because he was such a respectable uh, uh, straight uh, fiction author who wrote uh, trashy, uh, meaningless bestsellers that no one cared about the year after they came out. Uh, and certainly Lovecraft felt, and in fairness, all of literary culture then and now felt, were uh, middle lowbrow at best. Uh, so the discovery yeah, so if, of the If you think there's a lot of un, unmined gems <laughs> in the vast corpus of work of Robert W. Chambers, you like a few things better than I do, but mm-hmm. uh, the, the the gems aren't there, people. No, they're they're not. I mean, the 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 adventure fiction uh, is uh, it's worth reading if you want to read about the French and Indian War. Uh, Robert E. Howard basically uh, borrowed a lot of the uh, elements of Cardigan and those and that series of novels for Across the Black River and um, uh, his uh, later. Uh, Conan stories. So Robert E. Howard found Chambers worth emulating as a historical adventure writer, but certainly the romances are, uh, uh, they're not worth slogging your way through. I, I find the, the his cryptozoology stories, many, one or two of them are good. Most of them are forgivable. Robin differs with me on that latter argument. And I think that I prefer his, um, uh, I, I enjoy more of his second collection uh, the Mystery of Choice than Robin does. But even those are not a patch on the, the first four stories in King in Yellow, which are a, 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 a sui generis a, a achievement for him. Yeah, a, a lot of them are basically sort of Bierce-like in that the, you know, the person you're talking to was a ghost. Yes, or, or, or the Mopassanti. The, the, the connection between him and Gita Mopassant yes. is very real. And uh, yeah. he's at his most Mopassanti when he's at his best, which is, again, in the, King and Yellow mythos stories. Right. Um, and speaking of the mythos, the uh, story we've talked about the most so far, Repair of Reputations, is the most yellow kingy and the most complex and layered. Uh, the least uh, related to this is the mask, uh, which is basically uses the King and Yellow as sort of a throwaway reference to a book, the way that uh, uh, Lovecraft refers to the Necronomicon, but it suggests that the weird events uh, are sort of caused possibly by the reality shift uh, sponsored by the book. And so what is that story very briefly about? Uh, the Mask is a, uh, it's a, it's basically, it's a love triangle. It's a romance. Uh, the, the latter half of the collection, uh, King and Yellow, is all romances. This is a romantic King and Yellow story um, in which there is a sculptor who has developed an alchemical or possibly chemical preparation that perfectly petrifies living flesh. And uh, that uh, becomes a, a plot element, I guess, to avoid spoiling a 120-year-old story. But uh, the, the, the love triangle plays a, a great part. Uh, the alchemical bath plays a great part. And then that character, uh, the, the, the sculptor, is referred to in other Cane Yellow stories. So the mythos is not just connected by the book. It's connected by the sculptor Boris Yvain and his uh, career. And so the uh, the, the ongoing King and Yellow stories have a feel of a mythos, which is another thing that I think that Chambers picked up from Bierce uh, and that Lovecraft recognized with a shock in reading Chambers, that that someone else had done the allude to things and then never explained them bit and had done them better than, than Lovecraft was doing in 1927. Um, in the Court of the Dragon uh, is uh, the trippiest of the stories. It's sort of a 
almost a sort of a hallucination or a, a waking uh, dream in which uh, someone in a church in Paris in 1895 who has read the book uh, feels that they are stalked uh, by a mysterious uh, entity who is uh, uh, acting as an organist in the church he is in and then follows him home. If you dial up the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast episode about that, it happens to be uh, me who's on it. Um, and then uh, there's the yellow sign, which is the most straightforward of them, in which uh, the uh, yellow, uh, the, the king in yellow comes for a vengeance I will not spoil against a, uh, a person uh, who has uh, uh, swore that they would never read the play, yet weirdly owns a copy of it and weirdly has read the play. Um, so, uh, and after that, uh, it is in the world of gaming that the uh, king in yellow mythos takes off again, particularly in the works of uh, the uh, Delta Green team, uh, John Scott Tynes and uh, Dennis Detweller write about him. And just as gaming revived Lovecraft, they revive uh, The King in Yellow. And so gaming is very much a part of this uh, subset of horror. And so I want to talk a bit, uh, Sam, about uh, the scenarios that you've written for uh, The Yellow King and how you uh, came up with them and how you made sure that they were specific to The King in Yellow rather than just being a horror scenario uh, two of them said in 1895 and one of them said in the present day. Um, yeah, so I think I think a lot of my interests, not just as a game designer, but also as an artist, as a poet, as a writer, is in the mundane. Um, so I think going back to my earlier answer, I think cosmic horror is so effective because it embeds itself in the mundane. So you could be like getting on the subway for your morning commute, be like a very mundane moment. There's nothing to distract you except for like the music in your earphones. Like that might be the moment that you're hit with the wave of existential dread. I think that the mundane is one of the most interesting things to examine. And in my opinion, it's much more interesting to examine than the exceptional because it makes it harder for the audience, for the reader, for the player to like distance themselves from it. And so with all of the scenarios that I've written, I think I kind of started uh, with the question, like what day-to-day phenomenons am I finding the most interesting right now? Um, and so uh, without too many spoilers um, for Black Star Magic, I think both the scenarios dealt with like inherent weirdness of spectatorship and performance. And they were trying to combine the weirdness in this very like mundane act of performing with cosmic horror. So for example, like the, this is normal now scenario came at a time when I was watching a lot of reality TV. And I was really interested in the phenomenon that is reality TV. What does that performativity look like? Like what, what is actually going on there and taking kind of this underlying fe unsettling feeling and trying to amp it up for cosmic horror. Similarly, uh, The Doors to Heaven was written based off of like a real life myth that exists because I think I just always find that the things that exist in day to day, if I can use those, are, the, are, are better than anything I could just create on my own, if that makes sense. So I think all everything that I've written is built off of the building blocks of things that are already weird in real life. Um, and definitely art horror is, is is another tag that we could put on The King in Yellow because it's about a play, a play that uh, is never performed except in uh, every scenario that a lot of that a lot of people write about The King in Yellow. And uh, and so we have to make sure uh, one instruction I have to other writers is never do the scenario where you have to stop the performance of the play because it comes the, the uh, Phantom of the Opera pastiche. Uh, in uh, the Paris book comes a little close to that, but it's not the main 
a point of the deal. So, and Ruth, you really dug into a uh, a particular aspect of performance and media culture in your uh, scenario, uh, and you built up a little thing that I created, sort of a stub in the setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you describe that and how you went about making that into sort of an actionable horror scenario? Well, I was really taken with this little page and snippet about the dream clown and starting to think what media would look like in a society that's not just a dictatorship because that's that's its own interesting thing and not um and not just uh very different from our own now but what would it look like if american media culture had evolved along a track that was both extremely control controlling and also extremely um subtly undermining again that those layers of reality and so since the um mode of black star magic uh, involves potentially using spells and magic and stuff i started wondering about the kinds of traumas that would it could be inflicted through um in this post dictatorship world through engaging with one's past with one's uh, media culture and it sort of gets into for many of us, I think, unlearning our own personal baggages um, regarding things that we were raised with, um, confronting other issues of our pasts. And so I really got into the idea of like what the dream clown could mean as a touch point for characters, how it might have caused trauma in the world and what it looks like if it's set in a um, in a film uh, a news type studio. And so sort of exploring a bit of the thread of what it would look like for a news culture to exist under this kind of situation where everything's a little bit or more than a little bit unreal. And so uh, Ruth, for the benefit of those who haven't uh, uh, read the book, tell us about the dream clown. I would love to tell you about the dream clown. I am very sad that my own beautiful big clown is, is not here with me today uh, because I got rid of it years ago, like a sane person. Um, (laughs) Big stuffed clown. His name was clown. Um, I was not a creative child. So uh, the dream clown is a character that's on a children's show on TV and uh, probably in school, certainly in toys and such that you could get. And I started writing, imagining some of the ways that this could be woven into your life. And it's on the state sponsored kids program where the dream clown tells you to, you know, just let him know about everything that you heard mommy and daddy and maybe Mrs. Reynolds down the hall and um, Mr. Diaz, your your homeroom teacher, say. And uh, in return, you'll have good dreams, peace of mind, all this other stuff. And so it's just a very unsettling thing of a little kid sleeping on a clown in the art of the book that really, really stuck with me. Um, also, as someone who had a giant stuffed clown as a child. And so... Yeah, it's like the idea of, um, I'm going to use the word ratting because the other word isn't coming, but being an informant, the idea of being an informant, being a child informant, but adding this really weird twist where it's a clown, it's in your dreams. Is it real? Um, And can it do that was also one of the questions I kind of toyed with a little. Uh, So uh, we have some questions uh, that our uh, Twitch audience have very kindly uh, set out for us. First one is, I'd really love to hear the panelists discuss how much player preparation they've done in various uh, games. Uh, For example, to use uh, handouts from Absinthe and Carcosa. Absinthe and Carcosa is our beautiful uh, Paris 1895 city book. 
which I took actual real public domain texts uh, that provided all the information that players need about Paris. So why would I rewrite them? Instead, I turned them over to the uh, collage artist, Dean Engelhart, who made them into these beautiful, this beautiful uh, fa facsimile edition of a scrapbook written by someone whose mind was undermined by Carcosa back in the day, and that you can present to your players as a uh, handbook. Uh, personally, my group is not as handout oriented as, as you might uh, think. Uh, sometimes I've had the experience, especially now that I drop things into uh, Slack, I think they like to jump in, know what's going on in the game, and they're, they're not about doing homework and reading a big long uh, thing ahead of time. And of course, when I was running my Yellow King game, I did not have this beautiful volume. It was just a set of files on Dean's uh, hard drive. Uh, handouts and Yellow King and Horror uh, panel. Sam? Sorry, I was muted. Um, so, yeah, I think I, at least my preferences as a GM are to stay pretty handout light. And that's not to say that they aren't useful, but then I think that their, their biggest use is like choosing snippets here and there, being like, these are the few select things that I want to show to a player. And then familiarizing yourself as a GM with like the entirety of what there is to know with the historical settings, with... Uh, with, with the books, um, because I think you can then use it as inspiration and weave it into your storytelling. So I think that is the way that I like to bring it in best because that feels most organic to me. Uh, Ruth? I think when I've um, done things with handouts, it's generally been one or two images for the most part, something that would get the mind turning. So for example, before I did something that... Um, one of uh, Robin's, I believe it was the one that I read at, ran at Gen Con, gosh, two years ago now. Um, and it involved the art student ball. And so I not only took one of the absence and Carcosa things that had been provided, but I also went and found the clip from um, an American in Paris of the later art student ball say like, here's an idea of maybe of the, the way that this would progress in our reality. So sort of think about what it might've been like in that very different reality and so I sent that to the players and suggested that they might consider watching that too getting an idea too for the for the enormity of the costumes because I really wanted them to be creative when they started thinking about their own costumes and how they were going to engage with it and then um, with the dream clown I really um, you know I sent that that little handout flyer thing in the book and said here you know this is this is the dream clown and that was really enough to make them um, concerned I think about it. <laughs> yeah they were like oh we grew up with this did we like yeah you grew up with this and it it was a really um again it had sparked that whole scenario for me and I, I felt it really brought something out with them too uh and ken uh you haven't yet uh, played yellow king i don't think but you're uh fixing to because you've been drawn into some uh research how do you anticipate using uh the copious handouts you will no doubt uh, discover uh, in the uh, era that you want to explore? Uh, traditionally in my in my games, I, I ran an Unknown Armies game set in the Old West, and I imagine that the process will be very similar. Uh, traditionally, what it involves is me finding a map of the territory, in this case of San Francisco in 1912, um, maybe one of Carmel on Sea, if that's where the uh, the adventure takes place. And then that's what I hand out to the players. The rest is up to them. And generally people will 
know what they think of Jack London and Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, they probably won't know George Sterling, um, but my players are all uh, University of Chicago people and all have access to the same Wikipedia that I do. So, and, and for context, large, you're thinking of doing a, a, a source book that's like follows on from Paris and takes yes, those characters the, into San Francisco right. uh, a decade and a bit later. Yeah, 17 years later in, in 1912. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's the sort of the second half of it. Right. Or, you know, they've, they've, they've had their adventures in Paris. They're like, well, that's all behind us. Oh, no, it's not all behind us. This is actually the yellow is still happening. So they, they have to reassemble in San Francisco and deal with uh, stuff uh, of, of whatever sort. And, and so a lot of it is is really just sort of establishing the very basic outlines of information that they would have. And that can be done just as easily as pointing to the map and saying, here's the Barbary Coast. It's a wretched hive of scum and villainy. And then they can go Google Barbary Coast as fast as I can go Google Barbary Coast, even faster, because I'm running a game. And, and then being ready to roll with whatever the players bring to me. That's what I think uh, is a real advantage to a historical game. It's harder to do that in any of the other settings. But they can come back to me, as they did repeatedly uh, in the Old West game, and say, uh, this guy uh, was, was, was badly wounded in an accident he never talked about later. What do you think that was, Ken? And I was like, well, that's a fascinating fact. Let's all explore it in, in, in play. And that's, you know, they, they, outsource they, they, the hand-bounding. That's what I say. <laughs> they, they were Kenneth hiding Kenneth Hyde. Exactly. It's part of the fun. Um, next question uh, is, I'm usually the GM in my group. I find when I run cosmic horror games, my players are often waiting for the horror to start and tend to want to hit the fast-forward button on anything involved in the build. I skew toward a less-is-more approach in cosmic horror uh, as opposed to a shoggoth around every corner, and that's definitely uh, the approach uh, for uh, King and Yellow. Uh, so any advice on how to keep players interested in the build? Thank you. Uh, Ruth, the slow burn, how do you do it? I think you have to really starting, um, so I, I would say two, two angles to start doing this. One is starting with, again, slight distrust of reality, slight changes to things. Um, figure out ways in which that will advance or otherwise lead up to your story and seed them in there. I think that's a good start um, so that they understand that the horror is present throughout, even if you're, you're burning up to it. But then also I think there's some room for um, either backstory incidents or other kinds of sidebar type things um, where you engage with the weird. I definitely, we definitely had a good moment where I asked all the players, like, so what do you remember about the dream clown growing up? And that was well into the scenario. And so that allowed them to, um, to flash to something that was not yet, we weren't yet at the super weird bit. It hadn't gotten super weird. So they were able to sort of flash to that. And some of it was very normal and some of it was kind of unsettling. And that, that gave them a chance to put their weird out there. Uh, Sam, a slow build. Yeah, so I think I think I would have a somewhat similar answer in that you need to emphasize what the stakes are. I think if they if the players feel like there are stakes and they feel invested in those stakes, then they're more likely to stick out a slow build. So so like Ruth was talking about, uh, in in all the settings I've seen, all the characters will have a prior to the scenario. Here was a weird thing that happened to me, and so I think using that, using anything you know about 
the characters, any things that the players are particularly invested in, if they have a sister or a love interest or like a person that they've said is in their life, like bring them into it. It doesn't need to be outright horror right away, but like make sure that the stakes involve the things that they're most emotionally invested in for their characters. Uh, Ken, do your players like to uh, fast forward past the slow uh, burn or do they like to wriggle slowly onto the hook? Oh, my players are very fond of um, uh, of, uh, of, of tiptoeing in and then running back out over and over and over again. Uh, they they go up and then they they encounter something that makes uh, uh, Emily like hide behind her sweater and then they have to run away again because it was too uh, disgusting. So, in terms of, of of the slow reveal, a lot of it is just to keep a slow but slightly increasing feed of things that the players don't enjoy into the into the setting and if you if you begin with something that is 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 unnerving and mysterious but can't have any immediate action except oh if you look harder at it then you go crazy a little faster good for you uh that i think establishes the the building mood uh well enough and if they just absolutely want to dive into the ghoul tunnels well that's what replacement characters are for. Uh, the, 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 the cure to players who want to get to the fireworks factory is blow up the fireworks factory with them in it a couple of times. Um, the Yellow King role-playing game uses a device, uh, which is also found in other uh, gumshoe games, uh, horror games, uh, to encourage players to submit the slow burn that they would like to burn in. And in, uh, for example, in the Paris game, that is called the deuced peculiar thing. Uh, and the other three sets of characters have equivalents as well. And so you specify the odd thing that it recently happened to you that you can't quite explain. And that way the player is sort of buying into the idea of there being a slow build and they're picking something that obviously by definition creeps them out. And so uh, if someone is kind of afraid of gargoyles and statues, they say, I thought I saw the gargoyle move, or you know, I was at a party the other week and I can't get back to the strange dark manner where it, it occurred. And so the, the players are cooperating in the venture of having slow uh, reality things starting at the edges. And I found my players also like Ken's are one of their greatest skills is being scared of things. And they will seize on something and magnify it. And often that thing is quite uh, straight, you know, the, uh, later on in the wars, uh, I had sort of weird foxes prowling around and uh, someone mentioned that the cry of a fox is actually quite unnerving. And so we pulled up a sound effect of a screaming fox. And I just would play that at different times uh, over the course of the whole rest of the year and a half game that we played. And they, it just absolutely gave them the willies every time because foxes are terrifying when they make that noise. And uh, so all that was required to whenever there was sort of a slow moment that needed a, a bit of build was... Well, let's just reach for that sound effect again. And so look for the little details that they react to, uh, I would say, and, and that's how to invest them in the build. It's not your details, it's theirs uh, that uh, allow that uh, to happen for you. Um, the next question is, in your home games of Yellow King, what configuration of Casilda, Camilla, and the King do you prefer or uh, use uh, most often? I have the option of customizing the configuration of the, or I, I love having the option of customizing the configuration of the court. And so uh, as uh, for a bit of context, uh, as part and parcel with the idea of there being uh, a shifting reality that you are encouraged as GM in collaboration with your players 
to come up with your explanation of why this phenomenon exists, if you ever explain anything at all. Um, and so the court can be portrayed in, in various ways. Um, I um, I think I'm the person who played longest here. Um, and I, uh, Casilda was very important. She showed up uh, both in dreams and then later in reality. And also actually a legendary vampire, Adema from the Paul Vival novels showed up and I didn't plan on making a big deal of her, but because the players really hated her uh, because legendary vampire, uh, I brought her back as the character who kept appearing in different uh, other settings because it in addition to the perhaps quasi-immortal figures of the Carcosan court, it makes sense for a vampire to keep appearing. Sam, have you played enough to know who you would use uh, on, on over the course of an extended campaign? Um, I haven't had many opportunities to do so, but I think the experiences that I have had have told me that it's very dependent on your players and what they seem to be latching onto what they seem to be struggling with. Do they seem like they need someone who's maybe kind of on their side, still possibly evil, but is helping them along for one reason or another, then I think that you should give them that. Do they seem like they are kind of uninterested in the politics, maybe don't go into it as much. So I think just try to pay attention to what they're latching onto and what sort of pushes they need to uh, keep up their momentum. And I think provide that with the politics of the royal court whether behind the scenes or made a little bit more explicit. Uh, Ruth, how would you use uh, the court in an extended campaign? So I've been thinking about this because I haven't gotten as much of a chance to do that. And I think what I would probably do is keep an eye out for characters, particularly for the, the two da daughters or possible daughters, uh, female characters who have agendas and are involved in some way with the characters, probably at least to some degree seeming to help them because that's sort of the thing that interests me is um, that trust issue. When you are dealing with a supernatural entity that might be using you or might be helping you because you further their ends in some other way that's a little less easy. Um, and so I think looking for which characters flesh out because I think Forcing it is tricky. I think that part of, um, you know, listening to what your players bring to it, figuring out how a person evolves, that's been the trickiest thing for me is I have not been able to say, oh, yes, I'm going to write in this person who is definitely Casilda or definitely Camilla or even definitely the king in yellow because it's too, it feels too prescriptive for something longer term. So I think I, I would be exploring where they could evolve, where they could pop out of existing people, as it were, and where they might even start seeding into dreams to, to foreshadow that. Um, and then how they might, you know, that might reveal another layer of reality. Uh, so Ken, another uh, commenter on Twitch says, I was this many years old hearing that he also wrote other stories and genres, and I'm now very interested in the New York history ones. Uh, uh, Ken, how big a mistake is that? Um, it's a, I personally, I would say if, if you're a fast reader, it's not a giant mistake. The, uh, I only read the hidden children, which is the third, I think in the sequence, because I was misinformed that there was magic in it. There's just sort of like a superstitious fear of the Iroquois in it, which is not the same thing at all. But, um, if you are able to read lesser Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, the hidden children will not shock and appall you. Uh, it's, and again, like I say, 
that sequence very much inspired Robert E. Howard. So if you are a uh, action adventure horror minded person, uh, they might likewise inspire you. Uh, I don't know that I would personally read. I mean, I didn't finish Cardigan. I got about halfway through Cardigan and, and gave up. So um, it's uh, it's not a it's not a lead. These are not mysterious, hidden, missing classics, as as Robin uh, alludes. But uh, I think you know they're they're all right if you've got you know a, a, an evening free to read an adventure novel. That's an adventure novel, and you can read it in an evening. Uh, Jeff Cars asks uh, if we recommend running the sequences in order or moving back and forth. Um, I uh, constructed the uh, the game on the premise that people would mostly do it in order uh, and possibly pop uh, have characters cross over or uh, I had the Paris characters uh, do a an episode flashback when they were a little older as in the middle of an aftermath game and then the next week, the stuff that they did in the Great Chicago, the second Great Chicago Fire, which is alluded to in the Repair of Reputations, then became the backstory that the aftermath characters uh, were uh, uh, in investigating. Um, I would at least do a few of them in order and then move around, uh, and that might be a solution too if you've got a, a group that's really large and also the uh, attendance isn't great. But in general, you will have to do more adaptation. But, but having said that, uh, you can also just play any one setting that you think is interesting, right? If you love the Belle Epoque, you may never want to get out of Paris. If you uh, want to do, do one shots, you may find that the This Is Normal Now is the one that requires the least exposition and, and information. So they, I also do assume that people will uh, do standalone adventures or just stick to one sequence. Uh, but if you're going to do the whole schmear, I would I would recommend mostly sticking to uh, to the order. This is normal uh, now. Actually, freaks me out so much that I won't run it. So I mean, well done, Robin. Right? Well done. <laughs> um, but the world as we have it is so horrifying and dreadful. And I said this like two years ago. So, you know, I mean, maybe lean into that with your players. Um, I'm very much like an aftermath kind of person or a Paris kind of person and would probably just bounce between those two, which I think would also work just understanding that there'd been the wars and maybe even flashing to a one-off episode if you wanted to try that. But, yeah. Right. And, and the settings are all based on my short stories, uh, New, New Tales of the Yellow Sign. And it is because of, so there's a story set in the wars. There's a couple of stories from the continuity of aftermath. There's a bunch of modern ones. There aren't any Belle Epoque Paris ones, but that's the obvious no brainer that you have to do if you do Yellow King. And that is uh, both the advantage and the challenge of Yellow King is that the, uh, I didn't sit down to go, well, what's the four things that, that a, one group of people is all gonna be interested in. I based it on my own literary work and so uh, as a consequence, people are going to gravitate more to one than the other. And that will probably determine how much time you spend in, uh, in each of them. Uh, next question, how do you handle it when the player characters read the play? Uh, well, of course, I, I have an upcoming column about this, but the answer is that they've helped you enormously. So Sam, <laughs> what are you going to do uh, when one of your players uh, tells you that they've read the play or finds the play and reads it? So I would see it as a point of escalation. Um, I, I think if the player is saying to you, I want things to get creepier fast, because like they, they know 
the no, they know the ramifications of this. They know what they're getting themselves into. And so I, I think that is giving you permission as a GM to lean on the horror even more. Like if you were taking it slow, I think this is, this is the sign that the player's kind of done with the slowness. Like we need yeah. to amp up the horror right now. It's like I would be chased by an evil organist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm building on what Ken said. I think in some ways perception, um, if they've read the, play and say the other characters are less on board with that because maybe they weren't quite ready to get there i think that there's some room to futz around with having people roll perception checks and mess with what they see and how they feel like being stalked by an evil organist or something that doesn't quite exist throwing in some dreams but yes i agree uh it's definitely a time to put the 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 pedal a little further down uh can how would you ruthlessly take advantage of that um, I think Ruth um, has uh, put the uh, put the fun part in, which is that if one player has read it and the others have wisely not, uh, you can use something that the role playing game art form almost uniquely allows, which is telling one player something and telling the other players another contradictory thing, and that's that leans completely into the ultimate strength of of reality horror. Is no for you? Yes, there's a giant. Uh, a slug-like worm uh, staring at you and messing with your girlfriend. No, for you, no, there's not. It's just a guy who, you know, runs the cemetery. He's not a slug-like worm of any kind. Um, and uh, the, the, the players then uh, get tangled up trying to figure out who's real and, and what's actually happening. And uh, meanwhile, every so often, someone can just show up. If if any, you know, it, it beats two men with a gun if it's, one guy in a trench coat saying, have you seen the yellow sign? Um, and the, the, the other players are like, uh, no one talk. There's no one in a trench coat. What are you talking about? It, it's just a, an immense opportunity to, to sow dissension and, and madness into the ranks. Uh, it, it's a, it, it is, as you say at the top, a gift, a beautiful yeah. gift. And uh, personally, uh, when I ran my uh, vast campaign at home or when I run one shots, it is often my agenda to go far beyond having the player specify that they've sought to read the play, but rather it turns out as part of the backstory, they've forgotten. They not only have read it, but they were involved in uh, creating it in the first place. And that the, uh, the reality horror starts with them. And uh, most, uh, now some players have to be a little careful that, you know, people don't want to feel like they were led by the nose to that. But since you're have deliberately sat down at a, uh, Yellow King table, or you are my very tolerant players at home, uh, you uh, know that that's part of the, the deal, that you have, uh, like the characters in the stories, you may have read the play already. And uh, and it, it just offers so many possibilities because any damn thing you want to have happen can happen. Uh, one of the great advantages of F20 play is in a D&D style kitchen sink fantasy universe, anybody can think of anything happening and it makes sense. That often doesn't work in, in uh, horror games, especially very historical ones. But here you ha can have both high historicity and also have anything happen at any time and then have it make sense because reality is breaking down uh, due to the book. Uh, the next question is, how hard is it to run if you haven't uh, GM'd before? Uh, what, are, what are our recommendations uh, for Yellow King as a starter game? Uh, Ruth? I think I'm going to assume that you've played before and that you've played games that are at least slightly in the genre of this. I would say um, with those two assumptions, it's 
probably one of the easier ones to pick up in that the I, I found the fight mechanics extremely streamlined while allowing for a lot of great player narration. It's certainly um, one of my favorite ways to do a fight scene is, is the mechanics in this. And then much of the rest of it is um, storytelling, the skills in Gumshoe, I find Gumshoe generally fairly easy to pick up. And I think that this has, the quick shock aspect has really, again, lowered the bar to entry. So I, I would say fairly easy, um, but whatever you can do to prep yourself for um, storytelling, for listening to and responding to your players and in their stories. And that, those would be my, my two real recommendations. Uh, Sam, would you re recommend this for a beginning uh, GM? I think I would. Yeah, I, I would say that it is a fairly straightforward system. Like, I don't think there's any like, oh, my God, this is a huge mechanic that I don't understand how to run. I think I would say maybe if you're going to run it, listen to some podcasts where it's being played, because the thing when I was first starting to run Gumshoe that I think I, I struggled with most was trying to figure out the most organic way to give them the clues since they're not rolling for the investigative abilities, which is like the key part of gumption is very important, but it, it needs to be done in a way. So it's not like Oprah style. Now you get a clue. Now you get a clue. It can't just be like, there has to be some suspense built into it. So I think listening to some examples of how that's done well will be helpful as a GM. Right. Uh, there's a lot of good gumshoe examples, uh, but uh, Yellow King is still pretty new. So we're still trying to lure someone into uh, doing that for us uh, with uh, Yellow King. Uh, Ken, tips for running uh, Yellow King as a beginning GM? Um, I think that, uh, like Ruth says, assuming you've played uh, any sort of uh, horror RPG, it'll be pretty transparent. And I think also if you've played story games, because the, uh, the streamlined combat and the emphasis on human interaction that's present in Yellow King, or at least in the setting, uh, may make people who are more familiar with sort of uh, uh, story game uh, structures a little more comfortable running it for the first time than someone who's coming to it from a crunchier system like Pathfinder or whatever. Uh, I don't know that I would say this is, you know, the, the best first game ever for someone to run, uh, even in Gumshoe, but I would say that it's no more difficult than anything except maybe fear itself, which is very, very meant, uh, very on rampy as a, as a first gumshoe game. Um, and um, some of the aspects as, uh, as Ruth said, the, the streamlined combat, especially are going to make it easier. Uh, there's going to be less bookkeeping, certainly. And depending on how you uh, handle the card aspect that, that both solve that, that solves a lot of problems in terms of character of, of character, uh, tracking and, and bookkeeping, and assuming you've got a, a, a suitable card mechanism set up on your Slack or whatever else, I, I think that that once you've got up the, the little learning step, you're on a, a, a long, flat, beautiful learning um, uh, ballroom. Yeah, well, one thing about Gumshoe Adventures is they're very structured because they're mysteries, and mysteries have to make sense, and they uh, have to allow the players the freedom to investigate uh, within an existing structure. There's a lot of backstopping that the scenarios do for you that I think would really help as a beginning GM. So, and the, the core book has one scenario for each of the uh, settings. So uh, it gives you a, a lot to work with in terms of finding a structure that you can then uh, replicate. Uh, our next question is, if you uh, had to make a fifth setting for the Yellow King, uh, what would it be? Uh, Ruth? 
it's, it's something comes to mind as a a, yeah. a a reality that I left untouched? Probably the 1970s. I'm thinking particularly the era of the um, the burnout of the enthusiasm of the 60s. I think that that the challenge in this, of course, is we had a very different 60s if you're in this timeline. So it might have to be an alternate 1970s, uh, possibly, I don't know, hook in with the fall of Delta Green and <laughs> take that sideways. Um, but I think you've got you've got moon stuff, you've got drug stuff, which I think is a really suited era for it. You have your film stuff, which is really changing in that, again, in that time period. Um, so I think that there's a lot of movement in the 70s that makes it sort of the, I don't know, uh, bitter taste of societal shift away from a hopeful future that could really work. Sam? I think, I think in that the, in, in that time is such a big thing with the King in Yellow, looking at the way these different uh, settings interact with each other, I think the direction I would have to go would be a futuristic setting, um, since that feels like that's in that, like, I don't think there's a gap. I think that it does very well with these four settings, but I think if I were to build on it to build another iteration, it would be a future. It would be looking, uh, once again, at the consequences of, of all of these things, um, I don't know how it would implement it necessarily and that that would have to be done totally very differently from aftermath, which is I think where you one setting where you really see consequences versus this is normal. Um, but I, I think futuristic would be the path to take here. Ken? Um, well, uh, in light of Ruth's uh, comment, I think obviously any artistic scene that you know well, 70s film culture is a classic example. Um, you could set an equivalent to Paris 1895 of people in the arts discovering something uh, horrible underlying the greatest example of their art. So in the 70s, it would be a lost film from the 30s, a la Theodore Rozak's novel Flickr. You could do it in, um, you know, the, Andy Warhol's factory, uh, any, any art scene that you know well. Uh, I, uh, by an odd coincidence, am doing a, a sequel to Paris uh, called San Francisco 1912, set in the decadent uh, scene around George Sterling, Ambrose Bierce, and a guy that I like to call Clark Ashton Smith, who's a, a young bumpkin from Auburn, California, just into the big city for the first time with a head full of dreams and a heart full of poems. Um, so I, I think that, uh, that that's a great uh, uh, possibility, and it, it, it lets you have a, a sort of a sequel to your Paris adventures, the, the one last job uh, feel. I think another possible place to do it would be the um, uh, Demoiselle Dees era of medieval Brittany or, or late 15th century Brittany, where um, you're doing the Yellow King, but as the fairy tales that will be coalesced by the unknown author of uh, the play into his play. So you're setting down the precursors where, yeah, the assistant falconer's name is Haster. Why? That's a normal name. Everyone's named Haster around here. Uh, it's called yeah, I, I, again, why wouldn't you be named? It'd be like being named Pierre, uh, Hester Pierre, my my granddad. Um, and so the uh, the possibility of doing it in in um, uh, medieval uh, Brittany or Renaissance Brittany is is another strong uh, opportunity. And then you could do crossovers with uh, Clark Ashton Smith's Everwan, uh, which I've already done uh, one on uh, the uh, on the C Page XX. I did a little side trip to Auvergne 
1895 for people who can't can't get enough Clark Ashton Smith in their life. So I let Ken go first, so I don't have to say Brittany. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, <laughs> and uh, I've already done Dream Hands of Paris, so uh, I wouldn't do uh, the Surrealists again uh, with uh, Yellow King, but that won't stop you. Uh, so the other thing I would say is uh, the French Civil War and the suppression of the Cathars, uh, because of course uh, the, the Cathars will have come up in Paris as the uh, inspiration for uh, the Martinists and other occultists. The advantage of the Cathars is that all their books were burned, so you can make up whatever you want about what they believed, and uh, so you can decide what's salubrious to you, because of course that's the whole point of being an occultist, is to make up a, a, a reality that uh, you like better than the one that you actually uh, live in. So I think that would be, and uh, the, uh, the Huguenot story is another uh, huge uh, story of horror. Um, and and because we're looking at uh, France as well, that the French Revolution uh, is, uh, the, the 1870 revolution uh, uh, is big backstory in Paris. And you might want to go back to the one that uh, non-French people know more about. And that certainly had the sense that all of reality was uh, falling apart. Well, uh, we've reached the top of the hour and just as at real Gen Con, uh, there are people who want to use this room. Uh, so at this point, I'd like to uh, thank all of you over on the Twitch for uh, joining us and uh, appreciate your coming by and hope you enjoy uh, your virtual Gen Con. So I don't know about you, but I'm going to go hit a, uh, a virtual food truck. Uh, so uh, uh, everybody else, uh, thank you uh, so much. And let's just go around the room and tell people where we can be found. Uh, Sam, where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, so professionally, I have a Facebook page that's just Sarah Saltiel. I also have a website with the web store where my books and art can be bought. That's sarahsamsaltiel.com. I can also be found on Twitter and Instagram as S underscore Saltiel and Saltiel Sarah. Uh, Ruth, to the extent that you wish to be found, how do people find you? Um, they can find my uh role-playing and weird fiction writing at arkhamarchivist.com and you can find me on twitter at reithbrarian that's a little more of my professional librarian type self um, but yeah arkham archivist for all your horror writing and some things you can buy too ken uh you can follow me on twitter or facebook i'm kenneth height on both of those at kenneth height on the twitters and you can see Stuff that I do and stuff that Robin does on the CPageXX newsletter on PelgrainPress.com. Uh, I'd like to just a little shout out to Robert W. Chambers' nature writing. He was a woodsy guy. He was an outdoorsy guy. Those are the virtues, especially of the French and Indian War cycle. If you, uh, if you like Tolkien describing people walking across a woody glen, you will like Robert W. Chambers describing a upstate New York woody glen. Uh, th those are legitimately good writing. It's just that it's in between relatively pedestrian plots. So there we are. And uh, Woody Glenn is my favorite uh, past member of the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, you can uh, you can locate me on Twitter at at Robin D Laws, or you can find the weekly podcast that I do with Ken called uh, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff dot com, or you can support it on our Patreon. Uh, and so uh, thanks everybody again, and uh, we'll hopefully catch you around at other virtual Gen Con events. Thanks everybody. Bye.